all you Christians praying for rain to get rid of the drought, y'all are going to ruin Halloween. <laughs> Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. Uh, the Eric Erickson Show, the phone number. Well, the phone lines, I, I'll tell you when the phone lines are open. They're not open yet. Um, they'll, they'll be open here in a minute. Um, if you're listening, well, I mean, our our show stretches in now to parts of Alabama and Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina. It's just, it's rain. If you're anywhere touching the state line of Georgia, you've got rain right now. Uh, heavier rain headed into Rome here in the next little while. Uh, Clarksville, you're going to be getting a little more rain here. Athens as well. You've got a heavier band of showers coming in from Winder. Um, Calhoun, uh, Jasper, Dalton, you've got rain. If you're in South Georgia listening to the show right now, along the Florida line, you don't have any rain right now. Vidalia is clear. Uh, Douglas is clear. Uh, Americus, Albany, y'all are all clear. Uh, Valdosta, you're clear. But you got more rain coming in here in a little bit um, within the next hour. But really heavy rain right now uh, from LaGrange North, and it's sweeping across the state, and it's going to be a washed-out Halloween. Uh, you keep Jody Heiss in your prayers, the congressman uh, from outside of Athens. Uh, his father passed away last night. Uh, keep him in your prayers, if you would. I want to talk about impeachment and whistleblower out of the gate. I, I think it's it's kind of an important thing, and it, the whistleblower has largely gone away. I think the whistleblower needs to testify in light of uh, Vindman's testimony yesterday that there were things in the transcript. Uh, the transcript was not complete. Uh, allegedly, he testified. And uh, that was, I think, in his written statement that was leaked. Uh, the He tried to get things added to the transcript that were not in there. The way the transcript works is it's not a stenographer like in court uh, who types away on a keyboard. Uh, It is a group of people who listen in on the phone call. They gather all the notes and they put together the things that were said as best they can. Um, It's not a transcription process. And Vindman claims that there were document, there was information left out, including uh, the president more explicitly talking about Joe Biden, things like that. I think the whistleblower needs to testify. And there are a couple of reasons why I think the whistleblower needs to testify. First and foremost, it was the Democrats who originally told us the whistleblower was going to testify behind closed doors. The Democrats made a very big deal about the fact they were going to interview the whistleblower. And then they tried to claim that they couldn't interview the whistleblower because Republicans would undermine the process and those icky Republicans would out the identity of the whistleblower. I don't think it was a coincidence, though, that they decided they would not interview the whistleblower after it came out that the whistleblower had met in advance with Adam Schiff and his staff, and they had referred the whistleblower to a particular reporter, and the whistleblower certainly didn't want to be asked under oath about all of that stuff, and how long did the whistleblower coordinate with Adam Schiff? If there's no there there, there shouldn't be a problem. Ultimately, here's why I think the whistleblower needs to testify, and this sets me apart some, from some friends. There, there are some friends of mine who are very adamant that uh, the whistleblower would be harassed. Listen, I know about harassment from people. I've had people show up at my on my front porch to threaten me and my family. And I get that. And I get that the whistleblower would have concerns. But those concerns should have been obvious when you blew the whistle as well. And I don't mean to, to downplay the situation or the concerns or the threats, but I got to tell you, we live in a highly divided nation. 
it is extremely divided. Uh, I, I read you the survey from Georgetown University, the battleground survey that I'm so used to saying George Washington University, but it was Georgetown survey that um, the average American thinks we're two thirds of the way to a civil war. And to a lot of Americans, uh, they look at this and they say the Democrats have been after the president the entire time. They were after the president before he got sworn in. They tried to disrupt the Electoral College. They've tried to disrupt him the long way, the entire way. This is another example of another government bureaucrat trying to undermine the president of the United States who was just trying to shift American foreign policy. And you can say that's wrong. You can say that's nonsense. You can say that there's no there there. And that's fair. I don't believe the rhetoric of a coup. In fact, I, I, I don't think it's helpful. This is a constitutional process. But I also think it's disingenuous of Democrats to say, no, no, we, we weren't going to impeach the president. We were we were never going to impeach the president. No, we wouldn't have impeached the president without this. Was, they've been trying the whole time. Remember, we're going to impeach the blankety-blank from Rashida Tlaib, and the Democrats were all upset. You gave away the game. You're not supposed to say that out loud. They've been after the guy since before he got sworn into office. They've been trying to undermine him the entire time. There have been a series of leaks to undermine him. I think the whistleblower needs to testify. I think the whistleblower needs to testify because we know that the whistleblower worked with Joe Biden. We know that the whistleblower uh, had partisan uh, motivations in part for blowing the whistle. I think we need to hear in public from the whistleblower. They're going to take this process from outside the shadows. They're going to let the American public hear from the witnesses. They're going to uh, ask the probing questions they think they need to ask in public. We should hear from the whistleblower. The Democrats now say that, well, we're hearing from the people who told the whistleblower stuff. We should hear from the firsthand sources. But the inspector general said that the whistleblower's report wasn't just based on hand, secondhand stuff, but firsthand stuff as well. What firsthand stuff? Why do we hear from all of these people who have firsthand information, but we don't hear from the whistleblower who has firsthand information? Because the inspector general statement pushing back on the forum, remember some people said the forum had been changed to accommodate the whistleblower. Uh, the inspector general said, yes, the whistleblower based, based their whistleblowing complaint on secondhand information, but also had firsthand information. So what firsthand information? Why, why do we hear from these people who have firsthand information and not from that person? You're going to allow people to concoct conspiracy theories about the deep state and everyone else, and some of them are looking legit. You got the New York Times now saying, hey, yeah, there is a deep state, and God bless them. You're going to allow people to make the claims of, of coup. You're going to allow people to make claims of deep state. You're going to allow people to make claims of embedded third parties trying to undermine this president unless everybody comes out of the shadows, including the whistleblower. You wanted the transcript release, you got the transcript release, you, you want the process public, they're going to make the process public, make the whistleblower public. I suspect they're not making the whistleblower public not because of harassment fears. I suspect they're not making the whistleblower public because if the whistleblower were to become public, it would undermine the process because we would say either this is someone who was passed over for promotion by the president and so uh, angry about it, or this is a person who really is a partisan, who is known to be a partisan within the government, and uh, that person would undermine the credibility of the impeachment investigation. So make the whistleblower public. Let, let's see what actually happens. Interestingly enough, it looks like the, the Republicans are trying to figure out who the whistleblower is. 
and I, I think this goes to the fact that, you know, the, the, the spin in the media right now is that the reason the Republicans want to know who the whistleblower is is because the Republicans want to cause that person harm or, or have people attack the whistleblower or have the whistleblower threat. No, I think there is a, a growing sense that if people knew who the whistleblower was, we would realize this was a partisan process from the get-go, and this was a partisan setup. Uh, by a whistleblower who was nursing partisan grievances against the president, it would give the Republicans ammunition to undermine it. Now, listen, I, I'm deeply troubled by by what we know so far from Bill Taylor and from uh, Vindman, the the guy who testified yesterday. Uh, there do appear to be concerns that the president was was dragged into this by Rudy Giuliani and Ambassador Sunland, both of whom are getting the president impeached because they're incompetent. The president does appear, based on what we know, to have had partisan motivations related to 2020 for asking about Joe Biden. If he actually did, if he held up money because of it, I think that probably is impeachable. I think there's an argument to be made that let's just let the voters decide. We'll be closer to an election than anything else, so let the voters decide. If the Democrats want to pass their their impeachment resolution, go for it, but let the voters decide, not the Senate. We're that close to the election. There's an argument Republicans can make on that, that front. But it is concerning. I don't want, let, let's say Nikki Haley runs in 2024. Let's say Elizabeth Warren. Worst case scenario, Elizabeth Warren gets elected. Nikki Haley runs against her. I do not want Elizabeth Warren to think she is justified in having any foreign government or domestic agency investigating Nikki Haley as a political opponent. So I don't think this president should do it to Joe Biden. I think it's a dangerous precedent. You can say, well, well, Barack Obama did it with the Russians against Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump should investigate how the Russian uh, stuff started. I, I think the Steele dossier investigating that is fair game. We should find out if Democrats did to Donald Trump what they now say Donald Trump is doing to Joe Biden. That is perfectly fair game. And to the extent that the Democrats are howling about it, it is partisan. They should want to know as well, but they don't. And that's why we should investigate it. In the same way, we should know who the whistleblower is. And I think this is why the Republicans are pushing this. Here's uh, Steve Scalise on the impeachment inquiry from yesterday. It's clear Pelosi needs to declare a mistrial. This has been a tainted process from the start. What happened today confirms even worse uh, just how poorly Adam Schiff is handling this process and denying the ability uh, for Republicans to even ask basic questions that are critical to the heart of whether or not a president of the United States is impeached. Uh, this is, by the way, something that Hamilton himself warned against. Uh, when he was writing in the Federalist Papers, expressing concerns about how Congress would handle impeachment. This is exactly what he talked about. This stinks to high heaven. Uh, this shouldn't be allowed, not in the United States of America. Yeah, they're not letting the Republicans ask all of the questions they want to ask of the witnesses, particularly Veneman yesterday. And I, I suspect what they were trying to find out was who exactly the whistleblower is. And I think it's a relevant question. I do. I think Republicans have a right to know. I think it sets parameters for how this began. Oddly enough, Tom Brokaw, of all people, was talking to Andre Mitchell on MSNBC. Listen to this. The big difference is, however, Andrea, that they still don't have this, what you would call... The, the big difference, let, let me start this over. I didn't set it up properly. I apologize. The big difference between Watergate with Richard Nixon and this. The big difference is, however, Andrea, that they still don't have what you would call the goods on this president in terms of breaking the law and being in an impeachable 
target for them. They're going to start the process, but they don't have the same kind of clarity that the people who are opposed to Richard Nixon had because it was so clear that these were criminal acts that he was involved in. And that's a big difference here. It's not a criminal, it's an abusive act if the president got a foreign power to investigate Joe Biden for 2020. It's an abusive act. It's an abuse of power. The first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon was an abuse of power issue. But it's not necessarily criminal. And even the abuse of power issues with Richard Nixon involve criminality. We need to know who the whistleblower is and what their motivation was, particularly because of the the inspector general himself saying there was a partisan issue involved. We need to hear it from the whistleblower because we know the whistleblower went to Adam Schiff first. Why did he go to Adam Schiff first? Why did she go to Adam Schiff first? We don't know who the person is. We need to know these things. I think these are relevant issues. I, I absolutely think they're relevant. I think that if they're going to make this process as transparent as possible, the issue that got the ball rolling was a whistleblower going to Adam Schiff, giving Adam Schiff time to coordinate behind closed doors to build the case to impeach the president. We need to know just how much coordination there was. We do not need to hear from Adam Schiff on that. We need to hear from the whistleblower under oath what that is. And I understand why Democrats are concerned. I understand they think that Republicans will be able to say, well, this is partisan. This is partisan. So it is partisan. It is political. All of it is. And we should see just how political the whistleblower is. We need to hear from the whistleblower. The phone lines are open. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Well, related to impeachment, let me, this headline from Politico, uh, Democrats' internal squabbles overshadow damning testimony. The subtitle, they grumbled about a vote on an impeachment resolution, even as a key witness delivered a major boost to their inquiry. This is hilarious. House Democrats spit Tuesday consumed by intra-party grumbling over a resolution that ends up making limited changes to their impeachment inquiry, a needless distraction for Democrats just as they collect some of the most explosive testimony to date against President Donald Trump. House investigators heard damning testimony from a National Security Council of official who is providing the first direct account of Trump's July phone call with Ukraine's president. The kind of evidence the Democrats have long sought as they weighed impeachment, but much of the day was instead dedicated to internal squabbling and turf battles over the language of an impeachment resolution that outlines the process for which Democrats take their inquiry public in the coming weeks. And Democrats, from leadership down, struggled to explain just what the resolution accomplished and why it's needed now. I didn't know there was really it was really necessary at this point said Representative Jeff, Jeff Andrew, one of the caucus's few impeachment skeptics, who says he's leaning no. Let's put it this way. Demo- Republicans very much want it. So if they very much want it, it would mean they just want to help us a whole lot and really think it's a good idea or they think it's good to put us in a tight spot. Anthony Brindisi, another swing district Democrat, also hasn't publicly backed the inquiry. He said the question, he questions the timing. Most moderates are expected to vote for the resolution, including some freshman members who've long resisted it, like Joe Cunningham, uh, not my buddy from Louisiana, but a Democrat from South Carolina. Top Democrats had not intended for a simple procedural measure to take up oxygen for multiple days, stretching from Monday's initial announcement through the vote on Thursday. But the impeachment session on Capitol Hill 
ended up turning the resolution into a glaring example of the Democrats' messaging struggles on impeachment. The rollout of the resolution caused angst among Democratic moderates, many of whom have fixated over the impeachment probe process because they see it as the only remaining aspect they can control, as the caucus seems headed to an eventual vote to impeach the president. This is actually kind of funny. The resolution is less about imbuing impeachment investigators with new power than about directing traffic at multiple committees jockeying for jurisdiction over the high-stakes probe. It lays out how the House Intelligence Panel decides which hearings to hold. It allows Schiff to add rounds of uninterrupted questioning for himself and Devin Nunes up to 45 minutes per side, as many times as necessary. Schiff and Nunez may yield their question times to staffers. There's a slight change from existing House rules, which permit committee chairs to add a single round of staff questioning at 30 minutes per side. The resolution spells out Republicans may request to call witnesses and issue subpoenas. In both cases, the requests are subject to a veto by Schiff and committee Democrats. The resolution preserves the authority of House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. It affords Trump and his legal team a chance to mount a defense and cross-examine witnesses. Those powers will all be subject to Nadler's description. Those details, specifically for judiciary, were outlined in a separate document. Top Democrats have sought to clarify this week that the vote does not authorize the impeachment inquiry, which is already underway. Several Democrats privately feared the rollout of the resolution unintentionally overshadowed Alexander Vindman's testimony. These people are stepping all over themselves. Uh, this is uh, that's uh, this story in Politico out this morning. Democrats all upset about this. Uh, the reason they're upset about it, you need to understand, is because Nancy Pelosi just came out. They had a bunch of oversight committees investigating the president, and then suddenly uh, Nancy Pelosi jumps out and says, "You know what? This is now an impeachment inquiry." In the past, what has happened is they have more thoughtfully plotted this forward. But the Democrats, for the longest time, wanted to deny they were actually impeaching the president until they found something. Uh, they found the, the, the whistleblower complaint. And then suddenly Nancy Pelosi comes out after the whistleblower, goes to Schiff, talks to Schiff. Suddenly Nancy Pelosi says, hey, you know all that committee oversight stuff? This is actually now an impeachment inquiry. It's because they've wanted to impeach the president the entire time. And in wanting to impeach the president the entire time, they had to come up with something. But now they're stepping all over themselves. You know, this puts people like Lucy McBath here in Georgia in an interesting position. McBath uh, voted for the House Judiciary Committee to change the way it was operating to supposedly uh, begin impeachment inquiries against the president. She voted essentially for committee procedures. As Doug Collins, he was on this program, uh, said, Doug Collins pointed out, this was just like a, an Instagram filter. Uh, they just, just changed the colorations of what they were already doing. Lucy McBath voted for that. Lucy McBath has not had to vote on the floor of the House of Representatives for or against impeachment. In fact, the polling in the 6th Congressional District here in Georgia overwhelmingly opposes impeachment. The voters in the 6th Congressional District here in Georgia, that's the district that Karen Handel lost to Lucy McBath. She's trying to get it back. There are two other people in the race with her uh, trying to get it from Lucy McBath. The polls show that voters in that district do not support in any way, shape, or form impeachment. So how is McBath going to, to vote? You know, here's the darn thing about this. 
you very well may see a situation where more Democrats vote against impeachment than Republicans vote for it, in which case the Republicans will legitimately be able to say there's bipartisan opposition to impeaching the president right now. And the media, I'm sure, will try to cover for the Democrats, but the vote will speak for itself on this issue, and it looks like that's going to happen right now. Uh, yes, I highly do recommend you text recipe to three, three, seven, seven, seven. Why? Because I am, uh, going to start sending out recipes for the holiday season. Um, in fact, I've got one going out tomorrow. Um, oh, just as an, before we get into anything else, have you heard about this, this, (laughs) here's the headline, um, a German restaurant has mistakenly mistakenly served cannabis at a funeral. It was in a cake. A widow and other mourners were taken to the hospital after being drugged from accidentally eating a hash cake. Police said the daughter of one of the restaurant workers made the cake for a different occasion. This is uh, Rostock in Germany. According to authorities, a group of mourners had just attended a burial gathering at a restaurant to have coffee and cake, a German afternoon tradition. But after chowing down on the cake, 13 of the mourners suddenly started reporting uh, feeling dizzy and nauseous. According to authorities, one woman had to be taken via ambulance to the hospital while the other sought medical treatment. They then later reported the case to the police and pressed charges. Uh, The incident at the funeral took place in August. Police waited to report on it out of respect for the mourners. It it turns out that uh, the 18-year-old daughter of the store of the restaurant owner had made the cake. She made the cake for the funeral, but she made a separate cake with marijuana in it and planned to consume it herself. Restaurant employee uh, took the hash cake to the funeral um, and uh, didn't discuss it first with the daughter. And the daughter is now under investigation for violating German. Wow. So apparently they had too much of the cake and started feeling really bad. They thought they had been food poisoned. Um, Oh, dear. (laughs) I'm sorry. You shouldn't laugh. Okay. 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 Um, the Washington post, let, let it, let us, let us discuss here for a moment. The Washington post, the Washington post has an op-ed. The Washington post had masthead now says democracy dies in the darkness. They, they waited until Donald Trump decided to become president or to get run for president. He got elected president and suddenly it's, it's, you got to you got to say democracy dies in the dark. They, they didn't have this during the Obama administration when the Obama administration was issuing subpoenas, uh, rounding up and locking up uh, reporters, trying to find out who was leaking. They they didn't do this during the Bush administration. They waited for Donald Trump, and suddenly, oh, we got to go back to democracy dies in the darkness. Oh, and the newspaper that did this is running an op-ed by a former Obama State Department uh, assistant secretary that we need restrictions on free speech. And why do we need restrictions on free speech? Because, well, Muslims um, and how they reacted when people did things like burning the Quran and and we, we just can't have stuff like that and that's bad. Uh, it, it really is absurd to me. 
that we're here and yet we are, uh, the, the entire idea that somehow or another we've got to restrict people's free speech because people in the Muslim world may react violently to a preacher here burning the Quran or some such. Um, it's, it's not our fault. And also, of course, you could go after Donald Trump. You could surely go after Donald Trump if you did that. Um, this is absurd. But it's, it actually is to be expected that we're here, that somehow or another uh, we should be curtailing people's speech in this country that we don't like. And it, what is amazing to me, actually, is that it is the Washington Post that is running this, the, the Washington Post, of all things, deciding that we've got too much free speech in this country, that somehow or another um, we could go after the president if we restricted it. Somehow or another we could um, in some ways uh, stop the Middle East from rioting every time someone in this country speaks. Uh, Richard Stingle, he's a former editor of Time, worked at the State Department. By the way, do you notice this? Uh, Richard Stingle, he was an editor of Time. And then he went to work for Barack Obama, yet another Time Magazine person who went to work for Obama, uh, Jay Carney as well. When I was a journalist, I loved Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s assertion that the Constitution and the First Amendment are not just about protecting free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought that we hate. But, but... But as a government official traveling around the world, championing the virtues of free speech, I came to see how our First Amendment standard is an outlier. Even the most sophisticated Arab diplomats that I dealt with did not understand why the First Amendment allows someone to burn a Quran. Why, they asked me, why would you ever want to protect burning the Quran? It's a fair question. Burn the Bible, sure, but the Quran, <laughs> you, you know he thinks it. Yes, the First Amendment protects the thought that we hate, but it should not protect hateful speech that can cause violence by one group against another. Wait, wait a second. Um, we're to change our First Amendment because people in other parts of the world don't like it. This comes on the heels of the NBA um, kowtowing to China on free speech issues. Richard Stingle thinks that uh, we, we need, and you know, this comes on the heels of polling that, that shows that millennials are want to ban hate speech. Here, here's the funny thing. It's important to remember that our First Amendment doesn't just protect the good guys. Our foremost liberty also protects any bad actors who hide behind it to weaken our society. Now, wait a second, wait a second. Who are the bad guys? In this case, he points to the Russians. But it could just as easily be the Christians. And what about the, the um, we should get rid of the First Amendment because we should not protect hate speech that can cause violence by one group against another. So essentially, uh, you, if someone reacts violently to someone's speech, then that speech should not be protected. So if a bunch of Christians go out because a Muslim says uh, Jesus isn't um, the only begotten son of God, and a bunch of Christians riot and begin burning places down, would Richard Stingle decide that uh, you can't say that, that the Muslims got to be censored of his religion? This, this is the problem here, is it allows the elite to pick winners and losers. 
That's the genius of the First Amendment is everybody has the right. You know, this is increasingly a, a pervasive attitude I find when it comes to the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the like, is that uh, the elite should be in charge of doling out how much of a right we can have. See, it's perfectly fine for the elite to have a, a Second Amendment. It's the hicks and rubes out there who won't use it responsibly, so we should curtail it for them. And the elite don't really need it because they can hire people to protect them. And the First Amendment, the hicks and rubes don't need that because they may say something offensive. They may say something like, men can't become women. <gasps> Get her Or they may something say something like, we don't believe that, that Muhammad is a prophet of God and cause a riot, or they may burn a Bible. They can watch pornography. They just can't question Islam. I mean, that's essentially what this guy is doing. Now, what's interesting here is that this was an Obama administration official who's come forward at a time more and more polling is showing that uh, on college campuses, students and, and increasingly academics want this as well. This is not a fringe opinion. The Washington Post does not publish fringe opinions. This is an opinion prevailing among the elite. And who are they targeting in particular? In this case, he's hiding behind the Russians. But it's not just the Russians. I mean, his very first example is Muslims rioting. The fact that the Muslims don't understand in, in foreign countries why we have a freedom of speech. You know who also doesn't understand the First Amendment? The communist Chinese. They don't like our First Amendment either. They don't like it. And so he wants hate speech laws. Hate speech has a less violent but nearly as damaging impact. It diminishes tolerance. It enables discrimination. Isn't that, by definition, speech that undermines the value of the First Amendment? That was The First Amendment was designed to protect fairness, due process, equality before the law? No, 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 no. The First Amendment was designed to protect speech. Why shouldn't the states experiment with their own versions of hate speech statutes to penalize speech that insults people based on religion, race, ethnicity, or sexual orientation? Not all speech is equal. All speech is not equal. We see how this plays out. In European countries where a, a pastor quotes from scripture that homosexuality is a sin, he gets carted away to jail. This is a this is more dangerous than someone saying something you're offended by. You know what? When you hear speech that offends you, it's your choice whether to react or not. But to react in such a way as to say that that person shouldn't be able to speak again is an amazing admission that this guy wants to censor people he disagrees with. I'm a Christian I believe that the only way to go to heaven is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that Christianity is the only true religion, that because God is interwoven in society and God has woven himself into nature, other religions certainly reflect God in certain ways. Other, other religions have certain truths because they mirror in some way God. They're, they're twisted and distorted. But you can see God in all of creation. And if you can see God in all of creation, you can certainly see God in some way in, in the ideas of God in other religions. For example, every religion has a version of the golden rule. Don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. 
except it was Jesus in Christianity who, who made straight the twisted path. Instead of reflecting God, it actually showed God. See, the, the, the reflection of God, like your reflection in the mirror, is, is the reverse of you. So the other religions, they reflect in some way God, but oftentimes it, it's an opposite. So every religion on the planet has some version of don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. And Christ comes along and says, no, that's not it. it it's actually do to people what you want them to do to you. You affirmatively act in a way that you want other people to affirmatively act. You don't just restri- you refrain from acting. Every religion has a concept of mercy. Every religion has a concept of mercy that that God will will show mercy on you and and um, it will prevent you from being destroyed, burning in hellfire, doing something, sparing you from the things that you deserve. But Christianity has a concept of grace. Christianity makes straight the twisted paths of the other religions. The others reflect God uh, with this idea of mercy, but they don't really show God in, in proper terms, and Jesus does. And uh, Where other religions have this concept of mercy, Christianity has this concept of grace. That it's not just that God spares us from the things we deserve, he gives us the things we don't deserve. Am I to go to jail or be punished for saying that? Am I to go to jail for speaking what, what I what I believe to be true, that other religions aren't authentic, that other religions aren't real, that other religions don't have a path to salvation, that you actually have to put your faith in Jesus Christ? And yes, there are things that are sin. The Bible says are sin, homosexuality, adultery, drunkenness, they're all sins. Am I not allowed to say that? Am I not allowed to quote scripture about God making male and female and we can't make male and female because God made male and female? Because that's what this guy suggests. Why shouldn't states experiment with their own version of hate speech statutes that penalize speech that directly insults people based on religion, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation? Deliberately insults. That's the word. Deliberately insults people. Well, what's a deliberate insult? If I'm speaking in general phrases and and say that I believe Christianity is the only path to salvation, that's not a deliberate insult. But if I say you don't believe in Jesus, so you're going to hell, that's a deliberate insult. So I get to go to jail for saying that, but it's a true statement according to my faith. Why should an elite be allowed to regulate my speech? For that matter, the Second Amendment or any other right that you have. And that's what the left wants here. What's so interesting here is there aren't a lot of people on the left or in the media that are really pushing back on this. Now, there are some, there certainly are some, and you know, the, the, there will be people in the media say, wait, 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 this guy pushed back on it. How can you say no one pushed back on it? Well, the one kind of is the exception that proves the rule. It's very much like the Beto O'Rourke uh, going after tax-exempt status for churches. There aren't a lot of people in the media pushing back against it, and there aren't a lot of Democratic candidates pushing back against it, because you can tell he, he kind of captures exactly what they're talking about. He kind of captures it. There's a story in Wired we'll get to in a little while um, about transgender athletes. And essentially what the story acknowledges is that, yeah, having men compete against women, even men who've transitioned, is unfair and they have an inherent advantage. And you know what their their acknowledgement is, is that it's unfair, but then two, that it's okay that it's unfair. It's okay that it's unfair. Life is unfair. 
they're finally acknowledging at least that having men compete against women in women's sports is unfair. And you know what their solution is? An algorithm. Yes, we should have an algorithm that includes socioeconomic discrepancies to decide who wins. It can't be first to pass the po- first past the post in the race. It, we got to decide, uh-oh, this person's too white with too much privilege. We got to give the award to someone else. This is an actual argument being made in a magazine that purports to be about science and technology. The algorithms will decide everything as we descend closer and closer to a civil war, I guess. Absolutely serious. Uh, okay. I just, this hurts my head. And But what, again, I think a key takeaway here is that we have a group of elites who are pushing this idea and it is extremely notable and you should pay attention to the fact that there are not a ton of people in the media pushing back against these ideas. And it's not because they think they're fringe and it's not worth doing. It's because a lot of them agree and that tells you where we're headed. Hello there. The phone number 877-973-7425, 877-97-ERIC. Yes, 877-973-7425. Democrats, well, they kind of want a 42% sales tax. Yeah, 42% sales tax. Now, that doesn't actually um, necessarily, it's not necessarily something the Democrats say on the campaign trail they want, but the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget has uh, done voters, this is from... Uh, this is from Yahoo Finance. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has done voters a favor by spelling out what kinds of new taxes it would take to come up with the money needed to pay for Medicare for all. Medicaid for all is what it would amount to. Warren justifies many of our programs by saying it would take just two cents for the wealthy. That's a reference to a 2% wealth tax on ultra millionaires. But Medicare for all would be so expensive if you tax top earners at 100%. If you took all the income of couples earning more than $408,000 per year, you would fall short. And everyone getting taxed at 100% would obviously stop working. So it won't work. Well, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has outlined a variety of options, including a 42% national sales tax. It would generate $3 trillion in revenue. But it would destroy consumer spending. A tax of that magnitude would be like 42% inflation, wrecking consumer budgets and the many companies that uh, depend on them from Walmart to Amazon. What would this do just just in in real world effects? You add 42% to a dollar, you go up to a dollar 42 Add 42% to a $10 purchase, you're going up $4.20. So your $10 purchase becomes $14.20. You would be wrecking the economy by doing this. Uh, The other option, by the way, is a 32% payroll tax split between employers and workers. Or a 25% income surtax on everybody. Or the government could cut 80% of spending on everything but health care. That includes highways, airports, and the Pentagon. Or borrow the money and quadruple the Washington annual debt. By the way, I, I got to say, I'm still appalled that uh, Republicans who are supposedly concerned about the size and scope of Washington, we're, we're at new records for the national debt and deficit. 
whatever happened to the party of small government, it can't just be the party of small government when Democrats are in charge. It's got to be the party of small government, and they're not. And they are helping. Republicans are helping bankrupt this nation. And who is going to hold them to account? Will it be the voters? I have a hard time imagining the voters are actually going to um, move to the Democrats on the issue of spending and, and the debt when the Democratic proposal essentially would require a, a 42% increase in the sales tax in this country. But I think they're losing hope on Republicans. Who is going to be fiscally responsible enough to deal with this problem? You know, my buddy Chip Roy, Congressman, maybe I should get him on the show at some point. Um, his proposed solution is we freeze spending, just freeze spending in the federal budget at 2019 levels. And with the growth in the economy that we're seeing, we will get to a balanced budget. We will increase enough money in federal reserve in in federal dollars coming into the uh, treasury that we will at least be able to curtail the national debt. But no one wants to do that. Everyone in Washington wants to keep spending and drive up spending and 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 drive it up further and further. And at some point, the chickens are going to come home to roost. To quote Jeremiah Wright. The chickens will come home to roost. He's right on this issue. And nobody wants to talk about it. And here come Democrats now wanting a massive new government entitlement that would bankrupt the nation. And you know who the big winner is in that? China. To say it as Donald Trump says it, China. China would win. China. China would. They would dominate if we did something like this. This is a bad idea. We need to reconsider it. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-973-7425. You know that translates into 877-97-ERIC for the Eric Erickson Show. E-R-I-C-K. That's how you spell it. I, I continue to get people. I Clearly, I, I mean, the show's only been around for a couple of months, but yeah, I, I realize a lot of people spell it E-R-I-C, but... C-R-I-C-K. So I just, I'm looking at the radar here. There, there's rain everywhere. If you're listening in, in North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, everywhere our show stretches now, uh, there's rain and it's going to, it's going to thunderstorms tomorrow. My wife has been working on marshmallow. Uh, any idea who marshmallow is? Believe it or not, marshmallow is a, a DJ. And the DJ, uh, he's a, he appeared in Fortnite and he wears a helmet in the shape of a marshmallow and calls himself Marshmallow and he doesn't speak. And I, I think every child in America wants to go as Marshmallow because he's sold out everywhere. We were able to find some woman on Etsy who makes the Marshmallow helmet. My wife did the rest. And I don't think the kids are going to be able to trick-or-treat tomorrow night. What is the protocol on, on Halloween being canceled in the rain? It seems like a couple of years. And we got piles and piles of candy, by the way. Um, we bought hundreds of dollars worth of candy because so many people come into our neighborhood and, and trick or treat. We've actually got police having to direct traffic in our neighborhood uh, because of the, um, because of the amount of people we're expecting. And I'm wondering if it's all going to get canceled because of the rain. I, I have no idea. Well, I, I, you know, we do need to move into some of the Georgia news here. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson is, she's trying to convince donors that she is competent and can raise money. This is a, a funny setup with Tomlinson. So Teresa Tomlinson is the former mayor of Columbus, Georgia. She got out early to run against David Perdue for the Senate in Georgia. Uh, 
and she tried to she tried to be a business friendly Democrat. Well, she saw the way the winds are blowing in the nation and suddenly decided she needed to become a um, she needed to become a partisan progressive Democrat. And in becoming a partisan progressive Democrat, she's taken a host of wild and extreme positions on uh, marijuana, on transgenderism, on impeachment, on taxes, on health care, on basically you name it. And suddenly she, Teresa Thomas, you need to understand this. She's an opportunist. She will say or do anything to get the nomination. And she ran as the business Democrat. She couldn't get all the business community on board quick enough with fundraising. Uh, And so she had to, Ted Terry from Clarkston, Georgia came in. Ted Terry is a hyper-partisan, hyper-progressive mayor in the most diverse city in Georgia. He grew a resistance beard. I didn't even know it was a thing. But apparently he grew a beard and wasn't going to cut it as long as Donald Trump stayed president. And he went on that Queer Eye for the Straight Guy show. And they convinced him he had to trim up La Resistance beard. Um, he is in favor of recreational marijuana. He's in favor of his city being a sanctuary city. He's in favor of all, uh, Medicare for all. He's in favor of greater socialism and government and higher taxes on the wealthy and on and on and on. And he has no shot. He's only got $90,000 in fundraising. He is not going to be the nominee, but, uh, the genius of Ted Terry getting in the race is, is it freaked out Teresa Tomlinson so much because she saw all these Hollywood people rushing towards Ted Terry. She thought, Oh, I got to be progressive now. There was some great video. I played it on the show before where uh, someone with a camera says, Reese, uh, uh, Ms. Tom- Mayor Tomlinson, how do you uh, compare to Ted Terry, who's very progressive? And she says, oh, I'm more progressive than Ted Terry. On the progressive index, I've got a 98.5 and Ted's only got a 97, but he's great. I love Ted, but I'm more progressive than him. And all the business people are like, what? You told us you weren't one of those people. And so they didn't want to give her money. <laughs> So then Sarah Riggs Amico comes in and man, Teresa Tomlinson is livid, livid that Sarah Riggs Amico comes in. Sarah Riggs Amico was the Democratic uh, nominee for lieutenant governor in Georgia in 2018 and she lost. She's actually in a lawsuit uh, claiming that there were um, balloting errors that caused her to lose that essentially Jeff Duncan is a usurper as lieutenant governor. There's news on Jeff Duncan. We'll get to here in a minute, by the way. Um, But so now she's running for the Senate, having filed for bankruptcy. She got the AJC to do this kind of fawning profile of her of, oh, her business has gone bankrupt and it's the pension plan but really it's donald trump donald trump is to blame for the bankruptcy and so now she's running for the senate against donald trump because donald trump caused her business to go bankrupt when really it's it's the the unions of the pensions are what caused her business to go bankrupt i, I was the, the the spin out there uh from some reporters uh, apologizing for sarah riggs amico going bankrupt was hilarious well Tomlinson's having none of it. She's coming out. This woman voted for Mitt Romney, and now she claims to be progressive. Ted Terry and I, we're the progressives. I've got the progressive index score. Well, didn't help. John Ossoff has now come in. You you remember John Ossoff. Uh, Ossoff uh, ran for, worked his Ossoff against Karen Handel and lost in the 6th Congressional District in Georgia and disappeared, went back to filmmaking, finally married the girlfriend he wouldn't marry on the campaign trail, and now he's back. 
He's using some of his old war chest and running for, for the Senate now. He's got John Lewis and Hank Johnson on his side running around the state. Teresa Tomlinson's uh, campaign manager is out there blowing up for dragging out the black men to campaign for him when he's a white dude. How dare the white dude stand up and run when we got a woman progressive running? None of this has helped Teresa Tomlinson. So she's had to bring in Steve Leeds to be her national finance chair here in Georgia. Steve Leeds uh, has a distinguished pedigree in finance in Georgia. He helped Max Cleland. Back in the day, Georgia's Secretary of State Max Cleland ran for the Senate and won. Uh, he was running what? That was the race that Johnny Isaacson lost, I believe. Uh, and Zell Miller put Johnny Isaacson on the uh, state school board. So um, Steve Leeds helped Max Cleland. And then uh, in 2014, he helped Michelle Nunn lose to David Perdue. Well, what did Steve Leeds do between uh, helping Max Cleland and helping Michelle Nunn? Now, I need to pause here for a moment. Because I, I, I need to make sure some people understand that I know you haven't heard of them. I know you, you, you don't understand, and it's going to be confusing and hurtful for some of you because you've never heard these things. And what I'm about to say is, is going to be deeply disturbing for a lot of you, but you need to know it happened. There was a scandal in the Obama administration. I, I I know. I know the media tells you there were no scandals in the Obama administration. I, I know the, the Obama administration, uh, Barack Obama says there was never a scandal. Eric Holder came out and said there was never a scandal. The, the Democrats come out and they say there was never a scandal ever, ever, never was there a scandal. How dare you suggest there was a scandal? Don't say things like that. That's bad and mean and hateful. And there was no scandal in the Obama administration. There was a government services or general services administration scandal during the Obama administration. In fact, the Obama administration itself described it as a complete violation of administration rules. They move so fast to throw the GSA administrators under the bus. You'll remember this, I think. The General Services Administration threw an $800,000 party. Martha Johnson, the chief of the GSA, and two of her top executives resigned. They were fired. An 800000 taxpayer dollar-funded conference on the Las Vegas Strip. Thanks to the investigative uh, work of the, of the Inspector General, the Washington Post, and the Associated Press, here's what we know about this party. The meal and the incidental expenses allowance was $71 a day, and they spent $31 on a networking reception that featured $19 per person American artisanal cheese displays and $7,000 in sushi. A $3,200 session with a mind reader, a $5,600 session of in-room parties, rather, $100,000 in employee travel costs to scout the event, meaning these people returned to Vegas multiple times to visit hotels before settling on the M Resort and Casino. 
$3,700 for t-shirts, $2,800 in water bottles, $1,500 for Borson scallop potatoes with Barolo wine bray short ribs, a $525 bartender fee. Three officials spent $400 of taxpayer money on rented tuxedos. There was $1,840 in vests for 19 regional ambassadors, $146,000 spent on catered food, $6,325 on commemorative coins and velvet boxes to reward all the participants for their hard work on what? The Stimulus Project. $75,000 for a team-building exercise to build bicycles. Another agency employee sought a discount on a $98 purse from the hotel gift shop. She received a $30 break because, hey, when you're this is from The Atlantic now editorializing. When you're making it rain with $7,000 sushi, who has $98 to spend on a tacky gift shop purse? The president was outraged by the spending and demanded heads. And do you know who was one of the people who was fired for this? Why, that would be Steve Leeds, Teresa Tomlinson's new finance chair. So the guy gets fired from the General Services Administration uh, for a massive blowout party in Vegas that cost taxpayers $800,000, including a mind reader, $7,000 on sushi, and a bicycle building exercise. (laughs) So leads on his LinkedIn page. He's got this, by the way, I've got this up at the resurgent.com. You can see it for yourself. Go to the resurgent.com. You can see it uh, on his LinkedIn page. He says his agency drove tremendous change management agenda throughout the agency and led by example for the rest of the government. <laughs> Let me read you part of this news article. This is from govexec.com. It's a, a trade publication for uh, people in government. Stephen Leeds, former senior counsel to the administration, was fired immediately upon the release of the IG report. I listen, I don't mean to make light of the guy being fired, but come on. Teresa Tomlinson didn't raise the money she needed to raise to keep people out of the race. She's got Sarah Riggs Amico in the race now. She's got Ted Terry in the race now. She's got John Ossoff in the race now. Ossoff is way out raising Tomlinson. Ossoff in the first quarter that he's been in the race outraised Tomlinson, and that excludes the money he transferred in from his other campaign. He's got over a million dollars in the bank. Teresa Tomlinson has done terrible with her fundraising. She's lagging behind um Uh, lagging behind Ossoff in the fundraising. He's got $1.3 million cash on hand. Uh, Tomlinson herself uh, only brought in $520,000, it looks like. She's, She's not doing well. She's only got a couple hundred thousand cash on hand compared to Ossoff's 1.2 million. And so what does she do to reassure her donors that she's going to write the financial ship of state for her campaign? She brings in Steve Leeds, who was fired by the General Services Administration uh, for participating in or or being one of the top people at, at GSA during this spending scandal. 
way to reassure your donors, Teresa Tomlinson, that your finances are going to be well handled. You know, I, I always see in politics people who are super desperate. They're very hungry. They're very desperate. They, they, they desperately want the job. And they will say or do anything to get elected. And and turns out that those are the people you typically don't want in charge. Um, and those are the people who typically trip themselves up by being so desperate for the job. They they get themselves in trouble. And, and this appears to be the case with Tomlinson. I mean, she was the one. I think Roy Barnes is supporting her. Other in, in the, the Democratic business community, they're all rushing out for her. And she is just embarrassing them in everything she does. And it looks like Ossoff may actually have a real chance at being the Democratic nominee, which is kind of hilarious in and of itself. But she's out there trying to convince all the Democrats that you need a woman. And that's her ultimate trump card here. She will demand you can't have two white guys running if you want to get people excited about the field. you got to have a woman. And it can't be Sarah Riggs Miko because she went bankrupt. So it better be me, buddy. I mean, that's going to be her path. I, this watching the Democrats run statewide in Georgia, one, it's a reminder of how shallow the bench is, and two, it is an exercise in hilarity to watch them. You should go to theresurgent.com every day. Uh, that's where I do all of my writing. Um, I, a judge, th- this is actually an interesting story, that it, and, and it's breaking news that it has happened now. Um, a judge has ruled that in Butts County, they can't require... Uh, sex offenders to put no trick-or-treating signs in their yards. Now, I don't know that it's going to matter because it looks like Halloween is going to be rained out and I'm going to have to eat all the candy. <laughs> oh, it's Mark Treadwell made the order. Oh, neat. Um, so, yeah, the federal judge, Mark Treadwell, he was an Obama appointee, very nice guy. He was actually one of my law professors in uh, law school. Um, he, he's a fairly moderate Democrat, um, but he said that um, it is, it only applies to the three plaintiffs who file the lawsuit, meaning it won't stop the sheriff from placing it in other registered sex offenders' homes, but that uh, the the sheriff's legal authority was dubious at best. This So this is a case out of Butts County. Uh, you may have heard about it. It actually became national headlines. Gary Long is the sheriff in Butts County. And last year... Uh, he had his deputies begin planting signs in the yards of people on these sex offender list, uh, urging Halloween um, people not to go there. And this year he ordered that the people on the sex offender list go on and put up these signs. And the sign said, warning, no trick or treat at this address. A community safety message from Butts County Sheriff Gary Long. It, it, it very much sounds more like he's he's doing it for electioneering than public safety issues. Uh, but a lot of people in the county support it, um, that these are registered sex offenders. Uh, kids should not be going there to trick or treat. Uh, they don't know which houses the registered sex offenders live in, although there's a website where you can check. And... Um, the judge wanted them to stay out. Now, the the federal judge has said this is dubious at best. Uh, the sheriff disagreed with the ruling, said he would abide by it. He said he had deputies put the signs up last year because a popular trick-or-treating event on the square was canceled, leading to an increase in door-to-door visits. Um so he, he's going to comply, and in this... Uh, so here's the thing. Some of the people 
And th- this is this is this is I'm I, I you know it, it's rare that I gotta gotta actually stop my my mouth and let my brain get ahead of where I am. <laughs> um, there are people on the sex offender list who are charged with statutory rape uh, because they were 17 or 18 and they were dating a 15 or 16 year old and the parents got mad and um, went out and had them charged with a crime or you've got a 21 year old dating a 17 year old. They, they I just, it's, it's, Statute. Let we should all be willing to acknowledge that sometimes statutory rape charges are angry parents uh, going after boyfriends they were otherwise fine with, and some people will have their lives ruined. And it's something that you, frankly, if you're the parent of a of a boy, you need to talk to your son about and and make sure your son understands he can ruin his life by this stuff. Uh, there is a situation in a school near me where the high school boys uh, were essentially making amateur porn and sharing it uh, around the school. And a number of them got in huge trouble. And it was a a wealthy school, and the parents were able to largely keep the kids out of jail for stuff, but it could ruin their lives, and the kids were idiots. Uh, And frankly, a, a lot of it is bad parenting as well. But by and large, we're, we're talking in, in Butts County, there were some really pretty obvious cases of, of uh, sex offenders on the list where you don't want your kids trick-or-treating. You as a parent probably need to go on. I mean, you could Google. There are maps out there that show you where all the sex offenders live. Um, but I do understand why the, why the judge said that uh, this is uh, across the line that you can't force someone to put up a sign in their yard. There are certain things that sex offenders are required to do. Putting signs in their yard telling people to stay away is not one of them, so the sheriff crossed the line on this. But, man, I can tell you that sheriff is popular in Butts County, and and this isn't going to hurt him. It's not. Hello there. Uh, It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is... 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yes, the phone lines are open. I I do have to say, um, so, yeah, just just very briefly. So apparently there's some guy who considers himself a comedian who goes around and tries to get on talk radio shows and then drop the F-bomb or something. Uh, And... I have a a very sharp call screener producer, and the guy is extremely upset that he can't get on. And uh, I'm I'm finding it funny at his persistence to try to get on the program. Um, and I'm also kind of dumbfounded by the number of talk radio shows on which he is able to get on. Um, it's just it's kind of funny. Uh, um, Jeff Duncan, the Lieutenant governor here in Georgia, he has raised $300,000 rather quietly, no less for a new initiative to keep the Georgia Senate in Republican control and take aim at a pair of democratic seats up for grabs. Uh, this is from Greg Bluestein in the AJC, the advanced Georgia independent committee launched with a fundraiser at SunTrust park in September. It targets the state Senate's eight most competitive district. All eight are in the fast changing Metro Atlanta suburbs. He said the group is focused on protecting vulnerable uh, incumbents and looking for ways to build the caucus uh, with a message that will tout the teacher pay raise and trumpet tax cuts. 
There are things happening under conservative leadership that are good. It's the latest high-dollar program aimed at down-ticket elections in 2020, though most of the focus has so far been on the House. That's where Republicans hold a narrowing 105 to 75 advantage. Democrats are targeting at least 16 seats. The GOP majority outreach, uh, GOP mojo, they're calling it, uh, wants to spend $10 million on 30 competitive House seats. Democrats have formed their legislative victory fund to target House seats. The Georgia Senate is far safer territory. Uh, The GOP has a 35-21 majority. Democrats would have to pull off multiple upsets to flip the Senate, but they're not taking any chances. Uh, Duncan also wants to exert a little more control if he's doling out resources. Some of these people are going to be loyal to him. Uh, They're looking to back uh, John Albers, P.K. Martin, K. Kirkpatrick, and Brian Strickland. And there will be two seats held by lawmakers running for the U.S. House uh, that they need to protect, Brandon Beach and Renee Unterman. And then it wants to flip a couple of seats. Uh, There's a seat held um, by Zara Karinchak, uh, forgive me for butchering the last name, um, running for Congress in the Duluth area. And then uh, there's the Jen Jordan district that she got in a special election. Uh, that one may be tough given the dynamics in that district and her popularity. But it's it's a very interesting thing to see Jeff Duncan stepping out there and doing this. Uh, Georgia is certainly in place. And can I just say, I'm this is a pet peeve of mine. Let's let's talk about this. Let me, let me un- give you my background here, so you don't just think I'm talking out of my backside. Uh, some of you still will, but uh, I was I got involved in politics in 1994, working for Saxby Chambliss. Started uh, the College Republicans at Mercer, became the College Georgia Federation of College Republicans chair, the last chair. Uh, it descended in scandal, which kind of brought me, I was only supposed to be like the second vice chair of the organization. Uh, the, the chair and the first vice chair disappeared. I found myself in charge, uh, shut the organization down and, and restarted it as the Georgia association of college Republicans. So I was the first chair of that and, uh, left, uh, got more involved in politics, went to campaign management school, managed campaigns, uh, consulted on campaigns. I've done polling for campaigns. I've done door to door for campaigns. I've done coalition building. I've done grassroots building. I've done mail piece design. I've done TV and ad and radio ad design. I I still, for friends of mine who are running for office these days, I'm I'm happy to sit with them. I'm happy to go through the SWOT analysis on how do you get elected? How do you sit in a room? How do you build a campaign? How do you come up with the theme? How do you come up with the messaging? All, All of that sort of stuff I have done. Um, and, and message matters and candidates matter and ground game matters and door to door matters. All of these things genuinely matter. And frankly, in 2018, one of the things Republicans didn't do in Georgia's ground game, the Metro Atlanta area was ceded to the Democrats in ways it should not have been. And that was in large part because the state GOP didn't have the resources. If you will recall, the state Republican party in Georgia was involved in a series of lawsuits and messy settlements over discrimination and harassment and other issues. Um, You had um, John Watkins had to step in and take over as chair of the party. He was clearly in just a status quo management operation trying to get it through rough times. He succeeded. David Schaefer has come in. He's been trying to rebuild the coffers. Money is tight for the GOP. And the GOP did not have the the time, talent, or treasure to invest in ground game in 2018. Along come these national groups saying, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to be the ones to do it. 
and they never showed up. And that's what people forget. They never showed up. The, the national groups never showed up. And we lost the suburbs. We lost Karen Handel's seat. We almost lost uh, Rob Woodall's seat. Uh, we lost uh, a number of seats. Sam Teasley in the, in the state house and others lost their seats uh, in districts that should be Republican, that went for Donald Trump, uh, if barely. The demographic shift. See, this is the thing that, that, that I think people misunderstand about all of this is there wasn't a massive flip in a lot of these districts. I mean, the, the way the media reports on it, there was some sort of massive demographic shift in these districts, and not in a two-year period, there wasn't. There was a lot of antagonism for Donald Trump, and a lot of the vote for the Democrats was voting against Donald Trump, and Republicans didn't show up. Republicans showed up. If you look at the, if you look at the people, the percentage of Republicans who turned out in 2014 and 2018 largely were identical. The Democrats showed up in 2018 as if it was a presidential election in Georgia, and the Republicans did not, and that mattered. That mattered greatly. Republicans didn't do a good ground game. So as a result, there are a number of seats in the state legislature that Democrats picked up. Uh, Betty Price's seat in the state house, Sam Teasley's seat, um, uh, Jim Jordan's seat, frankly, in, in 2017 in the special election, and a number of these seats where we didn't see the massive Republican turnout that could have had these seats become and be Republican. The Republicans understand redistricting is on the horizon. They've got to be able to redraw the lines to make the legislature more Republican. They've got to win every seat. Along comes uh, Jeff Duncan, and he's raising money to do this. And the ground game is going to matter, and the message is going to matter. The Democrats really want to make 2020 all about fetal heartbeat. But you know what? A judge has put the fetal heartbeat legislation on hold. No one feels that impact, and Hollywood is not boycotting the state. You know, I mentioned this the other day. In fact, if Charlie's listening, this will this will be news to him. Um, I, I actually had talks last night about doing a, a series online or, or on YouTube, um, finding some studio space to do. I've always wanted, so I've always wanted to do a cooking show. I loved it. I mean, if you listen to this, I give send out recipes every week, but I've always had this idea of doing a, a cooking show and bringing in a politician who I may not agree with, like Stacey Abrams, uh, bring her in and, and we cook and we don't talk politics. We do not talk politics. We specifically avoid politics uh, and show that it is possible to have conversations with people you disagree with on politics. And had somebody reach out to me last night and say, you know what? Uh, we love this idea. Why don't we have a conversation about it? Um, and and it mentioned that the downside in this conversation, it was that the available space is limited. And the reason the available space is limited is because, as I mentioned the other day, Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, Apple, HBO, the like, they've all got these series that they're they're producing and they need soundstage space. They need production space and they don't have it anywhere. And Georgia has the most of it. And so they can't avoid Georgia. So all of the doom and gloom scenarios the Democrats said would happen because of the fetal heartbeat legislation never came about. There was no boycott. There was no economic impact. The law itself is on hold from a judge. It has not gone into effect. 
So the Democrats really don't have a lot to run on other than the Republicans did this, and they're going to try to uh, fire up women against this. But you know what? It turns out women are actually majority of women in Georgia are pro-life. Now, when you've got the AJC and the media, and the media is totally in the tank on this, the, the media absolutely is hostile towards the fetal heartbeat legislation. Uh, the media is to the left of Democrats when it comes to abortion. That's a, actually an accurate statement. The media is left of the average Democrat when it comes to abortion. The average Democrat in the United States of America supports restrictions on abortion. The average reporter does not. The average reporter is more liberal. And that is reflected even at the AJC and the like in Georgia. The media outlets here are deeply hostile towards um, Christianity, hostile towards religious liberty, hostile towards the fetal heartbeat legislation. And more and more, I think voters know it. The other issue here is, is you've got a complete collapse of local media. In fact, one of the reasons I wanted to do this program is because I'm very mindful of the fact there are no programs that can reach statewide uh, where a Republican can get on and be heard across the state. If you get on this program, you can be heard in North Georgia, Middle Georgia, South Georgia, West Georgia, East Georgia, Coastal Georgia, Southwest Georgia, Southeast Georgia. You can be heard all over the state. And you can get your message out on a one-stop shop. If you want to do that, other than here, you got to go to, what, GPB, which is controlled by a bunch of Democrats? I don't think people understand that a lot of the, the, the media outlets out there in the state who are hiring people to cover 2020 are hiring them from left-wing groups. The Republicans clearly are going to be at a messaging disadvantage in the media already. But I don't know that that matters if you've got a good ground game, because a lot of the media in this state doesn't really gel well with the state population. Look at the Amazon situation from a couple of years ago. I will never forget this. When Nathan Deal is governor in Georgia is pitching Amazon, and it turns out that a significant portion of the state of Georgia is opposed to bringing Amazon into the state. In fact, a good portion of Atlanta is opposed. Why? Because people understood it would fundamentally disrupt the cultural values in Georgia. It would fundamentally disrupt the economy in Georgia, and it would fundamentally give an out-of-state major corporation an advantage that in-state businesses do not have in our tax laws and real estate laws and everything else. And people didn't like it. And the media was besides, how could people oppose bringing in Amazon? Because everybody except the media in the media bubble understood what would happen. And now let's go full circle to this Jeff Duncan situation. Jeff Duncan is trying to raise money to help build a Republican majority in the state Senate. He came from the House. You know, you talk to legislators in Congress, you talk to legislators in the General Assembly, they all have have a funny saying, and it doesn't matter where you go and which state you go, except uh, Nebraska, where they've got a unicameral legislature. Um, But it's the Democrats are the opposition and the other House is the enemy. Um, House members believe the Senate's the enemy. The Senate members believe the House is the enemy. The Democrats inside either House are just the opposition. Uh, Jeff Duncan is the enemy. Jeff Duncan came from the state House, moved into the state Senate, and they viewed him very skeptically. A lot of the state senators were back in David Schaefer, who's now in charge of the state party. And uh, there were lots of eyebrows raised about Duncan being able to do it. And there were lots of questions over whether or not they would actually give him full power or would they curtail it like the Republicans did to Mark Taylor. Well, they've managed to give him mostly full power. And now he's out there raising money to to preserve the Senate. They're going to be loyal to him. 
You'll you remember Jeff Duncan put the Republicans in the state Senate in a very awkward position. Some of them were very upset with him. There was a school choice initiative that he and Governor Kemp supported, and a number of the uh, state Senate members, including Butch Miller, apparently, from what I'm told, didn't support the legislation. And normally in the past, if there was legislation and you didn't have a majority of the Republicans on board, the Senate lieutenant, the lieutenant governor would avoid bringing it up for a vote. You didn't want to put the Republicans in an awkward position with Republican voters, so you wouldn't bring it up for a vote. What did Jeff Duncan do? He brought it up for a vote. And he exposed the Republicans on his own side who have been campaigning on school reform as not really supporting school reform. And there were Republicans who were livid with Jeff Duncan for doing this. It was an act of leadership on his part. That's one thing I appreciate about Kemp and Duncan, whether you, whether you agree with them or not philosophically, whether you agree with them or not on what they support, you cannot deny that they tell you what they think and they do what they say. It's refreshing to have politicians. And again, whether you agree with them or not, Brian Kemp said he would support the fetal heartbeat legislation and he did. He kept his promise. Jeff Duncan said he supported school choice and he wanted it to come for a vote and it put Republicans in an awkward position in the Senate and he made them vote for it anyway. And that's a good thing. It is a good thing to see politicians that we live in an age of cynicism. It is an age where people really don't believe anything politicians tell them anymore and who can blame them. You've got Republicans nationally have for years been complaining about the size and scope of the government. We're now at $23 trillion in national debt. It continues to go up. Uh, Donald Trump is escalating it even faster than Barack Obama did. Did you know that? Barack Obama at least said we got an, uh, a downturn from George Bush. Holy moly. The Republicans are blowing the budget. This is crazy. They don't do what they say they'll do. They don't support reducing the size and scope of the federal government. And that matters. At least here in Georgia, whether, again, whether you like them or not, you cannot deny the fact that Jeff Duncan and Brian Kemp do what they say and say what they'll do. And it's refreshing. You can believe them. And now Duncan is out there raising money to save the Senate. And now, and again, I, I think the AJC is right. Greg Bluestein is a smart guy, and he's right. The Senate is not as in jeopardy as the House. And I hear there, there are new issues with the Speaker Ralston uh, that the Democrats will use. That This Ralston scandal, I keep hearing from Republicans who have convinced themselves it doesn't matter. When you look at the uh, Philip Singleton race down in, in Fayette County, Philip Singleton, Marcy, um, what's her name, Sackerson, who, by the way, I'm told is going to run against him again. Sour Grape's going to run against him again. She thinks she can beat him the next time. Uh, one of the issues that put Philip Singleton ahead was the issue of the Speaker of the House. And you've got Republicans in the legislature saying, oh, the Speaker scandal doesn't matter. No one really gets it. Oh, you put the victims on TV. They get it. Um, it, it is, it's, it's a crazy situation to behold Republicans in denial in the legislature. And at least Duncan is willing to stand up and say, Hey y'all, we got to do something about this. Oh, uh, it matters. Yes, it matters. We need to talk about it. We do. I, last night I, I did not stay up and watch the end of the world series game. Uh, and as I was going to bed, I saw social media explode in outrage over the umpire call uh, in the seventh inning of the World Series. 
and uh, it wound up not mattering. The, the Nationals won the game, but I got to tell you, I really, really, I, I saw all these people that I follow in Washington just outraged at an umpire call. And I really, really, really wanted to to say, oh, well, if the Washington Nationals are outraged by the call, uh, God bless the umpires. Um, <laughs> let, let's root against Washington. Uh, I, I don't know that I want Washington to win the World Series just on principle. <laughs> mean. Uh, but then I saw the video of the call. I was like, oh, this is this is really egregious. It, it, essentially trying to claim the, the runner somehow interfered. No, he, he, he didn't. Um, and, man, it was nice. It, it was good sportsmanship, I think, to see a number of people, even from Houston, come out and say, you know what, that was a bad call. And it's, it's funny to see so many, I I guess I could write a book on this on how so many of our institutions are failing us. Bad calls in the NFL last night, bad calls in, in major league baseball last night. It is obvious that the calls were bad to everyone, uh, except the people who made them, who feel compelled to, they can't admit they're wrong. They double they double down and, and the, you know, this is actually, I think the issue ultimately is it is harder and harder for people in our society to admit that they're wrong about anything. It is. It's harder and harder for anyone to say, you know what? I screwed up. It's hard for people to say, I'm sorry. It's hard for people to apologize and it's hard for people to just let things go. Believe it or not, uh, Barack Obama was asked about woke culture. I actually agree with him. Uh, listen to to this from Barack Obama. Never gonna, you know, this this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff. I, you should get over that quickly. The world the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People who you are fighting may love their kids. And, you know, share certain things with you. And, and, and I think that one danger I see among young people, particularly on college camps, is Malia and I talk about this. Yara goes to school with my daughter. Um, but I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> Let me get on TV. Watch my show. Watch Gronish. Um, you know, that's not, that's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. You know, if, 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 if all you're doing is casting stones, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get that far. Wow. Barack Obama saying that good for him. 
he's right. Woke culture, it's a religion is actually what it is. It's a religious indoctrination effort. Hello, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, let's, where, yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I, I'm I'm changing uh, the order of things that I want to talk about. If you're if you subscribe on a daily basis to my uh, e- email, and you can get my email by texting show to three three seven seven seven. I tend to send an email out with the order of stuff that I'm going to talk about it in the hours I'm going to talk about it. Just in case you want to call in, and you want to talk about it, you want to listen, you want to ask me a question or something. You're you're more than welcome to call in as well. The phone number eight seven seven nine. 737425 but the reason that I want to shake things up is because there is some news out right now uh that I am somewhat familiar with uh, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library is threatened by easy fire in, in Simi Valley amid extreme red flag warning. Mandatory evacuations were ordered Wednesday morning in Southern California as a rapidly moving wildfire ignited and burned in Simi Valley near the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. The Ventura County Fire Department said the so-called easy fire was reported around 6 a.m. in the 200 block of West Los Angeles Avenue located near the 118 Freeway and Madeira Road in Simi Valley, northwest of Los Angeles. The blaze was 15 acres and started in an area near power lines before spreading to 200 acres and being pushed to the west by ferocious winds. A spokesman for the Reagan Library told Fox News the Hilltop Library would be closed due to the conditions created by the blaze. Firefighters and trucks have surrounded the library with protection measures being taken on the Air Force One side of the facility. The Air Force One that Ronald Reagan flew in is at uh, the Reagan Library. It is a beautiful facility. Now, the reason I say I I know something a little bit about this is because I was giving a speech there a while back about my book uh, that came out at the end or came out in 2017. And my original speaking Uh, engagement was canceled because of wildfires in the area. No one could get to the Reagan library. Um, The library itself is on a hilltop with very little trees. They've done a a good job of landscaping there to keep trees and and other debris that could burn at a distance. There there is uh, scrub grass and stuff in the area. Um, but they've done a very good job of trying to minimize uh, fire getting there in large part because of the archival nature of the library and the fact that Air Force One is part, not the current 747 Air Force One, but its immediate predecessor Air Force One uh, is housed at the Reagan Library, along with Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan being buried there. So they're they're doing what they can to make sure the fire cannot penetrate the area. Uh, I've been there, done that. Brett Baer from Fox News was at an event at the Reagan Library last night, uh, and the fire sparked apparently overnight. It is rapidly spreading, and uh, the media, of course, is out with all the doom and gloom scenarios out there. Now, listen, I, I, I need to say something that may alarm some of you. I, I've got a number of friends of mine who are meteorologists who have long been skeptical of uh, the hype and climate change, and they still are, but they do think that there is evidence, of course, that the climate is changing and that mankind plays something. And it's been very interesting to see friends of mine who were dogmatically opposed to climate change now saying, yeah, okay, there is enough evidence that it's happening, but we got to stop scaring people. And on that point, 
whether you agree with climate change is real or not, I got to say that the nightmare scenarios from the media do not help. Uh, We had a couple of weeks ago a report out that planting a trillion trees could actually take enough carbon out of the air to save the planet. Uh, But uh, that came out, what, two, three weeks ago I saw the story that if everyone planted trees and we planted a trillion trees around the world, we could could do it. In, In fact, there was a report out I saw someone came up with the idea of uh, desalination plants in Tunisia and Morocco to pour water into the Sahara to cause the Sahara to green to be able to plant trees to to offset what was happening in the Amazon uh, so that we could cool the planet back down by taking carbon out of the atmosphere well uh, now wired the exact same outlet that says that um, Trans athletes are unfair, but we should use algorithms to let them compete and decide who wins. That's an actual story. If I have time, we'll get into it. Uh, they, they now have this. Only a monster would say no to the pitch. The best way to beat climate change, the warming of Earth caused by gases like carbon dioxide emitted by human industry, leading to rising sea levels, worsening fires and storms, drought and disease, is simple. Plant a trillion trees. It'd be one of the most effective carbon drawdowns to date, said an article in The Idea in the journal Science uh, earlier this year. And who doesn't love trees, right? Except the math turns out to be shady. Last month, a bunch of climate scientists and ecologists piled onto that tree research, also in science, calling out numerous errors in the first team's calculations. At about the same time, a whole other bunch of ecologists started pushing back on the agriculture tech startup Indigo for pitching a similar land-based carbon sequestration strategy, the Terraton Initiative, paying farmers to use new methods that could suck down a trillion metric tons, or a teraton, of carbon. These goals are critical and the ideals are noble. Who doesn't want to stop climate change? Pretty much everyone except the Trump administration. It's the numbers that are the problem. Take the tree thing. The scientists who propose it made careful maps of where trees grow today all over the planet. They made it, had, had a census of how many were there combined with satellite data all used to estimate how many potential trees could grow and how much carbon those trees could slurp out of the atmosphere. There's room for 0.9 billion, nine-tenths of a billion hectares uh, of new trees, they said. 2.2 billion acres of tree cover would draw down 205 metric gigatons of carbon or 225 billion tons in U.S. non-metric standard. That's in line with the goal of keeping warming at or below 1.5%. Blah, 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 blah. But they forgot about the oceans. The oceans absorb so much carbon and they overestimate the carbon uptake by trees and they get so much wrong so many people were hyping this earlier this year i mean the the story i guess it was out this summer in science but then it became popular a couple of weeks ago and everybody's been hyping it let's just plant a bunch of trees and now people are going to no you can't do that in, in fact uh now they're blasting another study saying that we could build machines to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. No, the solution is always to abandon capitalism. And the solution is always uh, that that the United States is going to destroy the world, pay att- no attention to China. And now there's this. This this is a, the, the, this nightmare scenario from the New York Times. Rising seas 
could affect three times more people by 2050 than previously thought, according to new research threatening to all but erase some of the world's great coastal cities. The authors of a paper published Tuesday developed a more accurate way of calculating land elevation based on satellite readings, a standard way of estimating the effects of sea level rise over large areas, and found that the previous numbers were far too optimistic. The new research shows that some 150 million people are now living on land that will be below the high tide line by mid-century. Southern Vietnam could all but disappear. The first map shows earlier expectations of submerged land by 2050, but the new outlook, the second map, indicates that the bottom part of the country will be underwater at high tide. More than 20 million people in Vietnam, one quarter of the population, live on land that will be inundated. Much of Ho Chi Minh City, the nation's economic center, would disappear, according to the research produced by Climate Central, a science organization based in New Jersey and published in the journal Nature. Standard elevation measurements using satellites struggle to differentiate the true ground level from the tops of trees or buildings. In Thailand, more than 10% of citizens now live on land that's likely to be inundated. So in the next 30 years, we're going to have this global massive flooding event. Y'all, I, I, I hate to say I'll believe it when I see it, but I mean, look at this. This past summer, you had scientists rush out and say we could plant a trillion trees and we could stop all this. And now people are coming out saying, no, 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 you can't. Unless you get rid of capitalism, you can't. It's not going to work. The estimates are too rosy. It, 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 it just too coincidental to me that the media has been pushing nightmare scenarios about climate change now for the entire year. They've been very open about the fact that they think people need to be scared into action. And along come all of these nightmare scenarios to scare people, to get them to act. To do what exactly? I mean that—that's the issue here. What 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 exactly um, will they be doing? Is they they and you know in California as well they're pushing all the stories that climate change has to do with all the fires. All the fires are climate change. A buddy of mine who actually uh, went from being a huge climate change skeptic to now actually believing we need to do something pretty immediately to deal with it. Even he is like, wait a second, we've had droughts and wildfires in California forever. The patterns haven't changed. The rainfall hasn't changed. The drought patterns haven't changed. The time of year hasn't changed. The wind strings haven't changed. The wind patterns haven't changed. None of this has changed in the past hundred years. The only thing that's happened is we get more media coverage of events that have been going on since before we had accurate weather ratings or weather readings in California. There's no correlation there, but the media again wants to scare everybody. And I'm sorry, if the media can't be honest about these things, why should we believe the media on any of these fronts? Time and time again, the media simply tries to scare everybody. And later on, they'll retract the stories. You know, this is like that the health studies all the time we get these health studies out that uh, if you eat certain things like, uh, let's just take eggs. 
back in my day, uh, no, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, if you ate eggs, eggs were going to kill you. Eggs were the enemy. Eggs would give you high cholesterol. Eggs would be bad for you. Eggs would poison you. Eggs would make you fat. On and on and on and on. And, and it turns out that uh, the cholesterol in eggs actually can't be directly traced to elevated cholesterol in people. You can't eat your eggs. They w- nearly wiped out the egg industry because of it. And the science changed. Now, what was the study recently? What was the study recently? The, the red meat study that it turns out that uh, eating a bunch of red meat isn't going to kill you. And uh, the vegans are outraged by the study. and They've sought to discredit it. Uh, science has become politicized. Everything has become politicized. It's kind of unfortunate. You know, I, I, I don't want to dwell on this too long. There's only so much you can say about it, the, the, the fear. Uh, but one of the fears that is related to this is big corporations uh, advocating for climate change, but then not actually doing a lot to help it. Uh, big corporations are spending their money wrong, bad in ways the media doesn't like. The Associated Press has a story out about Amazon spending $1.5 million in Seattle, where it's headquartered, to elect pro-business leaders. Seattle City Council has been overrun with a bunch of progressive peaceniks who want to punish Amazon and punish it for hiring Seattle employees, Seattle workers. They want to actually impose a tax on Amazon for the amount of people that Amazon employs. The more Amazon employs, the more Amazon will pay in tax per worker. I kid you not. That's one of the plans. So I want to read for you this this Associated Press. The first two pa- two paragraphs of this Associated... No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to read you the four paragraphs of this Associated Press story. Listen to this. Brian Sweeney has a long list of complaints about Amazon from the way it treats warehouse workers to the low taxes it, pl- it pays and its efforts to win concessions from cities to bring in jobs. So when he learned the online retail giant had poured a million dollars into remaking the Seattle City Council with more business-friendly candidates, he pulled out his wallet. The New York resident sent $15 to Socialist Council member uh, Shama Sawanat, uh, a target of the online retail giant. While that doesn't compare to Amazon's unprecedented spending October 14th, about uh, 1,900 others have also donated to Sawant since then, her campaign says. It's a dramatic rise in support and a reflection of the risks Amazon is taking as it it, uh, takes to pouring money into its liberal hometown's politics. Many in Seattle aren't happy with the council. But they also may not like a company headed by the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, trying to influence their vote. Amazon could do this in hundreds of places around the country with all the money they're not paying in taxes, said Sweeney, a 28-year-old software engineer turned carpenter in Valley Stream, New York. Now, the story goes on from there, but pay attention to a couple of things here. Here's the headline. Amazon hopes $1.5 million elects pro-business Seattle leaders. And who is the first person cited in the story? It's a man who does not live in Seattle. In fact, if you read it, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27 paragraphs long, 27 paragraphs long. This story in the Associated Press There is not a single person in Seattle who is quoted saying they disagree with Amazon. 
they got to find a New Yorker on the entirely opposite side of the country who gave $15 to a socialist in Seattle because Amazon bad. It's amazing to me the angles and the depths the media will go to make these stories. Corporations bad. Now, I'm not a big, listen, I love Amazon, but but Bezos, I, I think he... He is not necessarily a force for good. Uh, look at what he's done to the Washington Post, among others, where they now routinely call for censoring people and, and curtailing the First Amendment. And why does Amazon want to take on the Seattle City Council? Again, one of the things that was passed in Seattle, they had to walk it back when Amazon threatened to move out completely instead of just putting a second headquarters somewhere. They actually wanted an employee tax. So the more people in Seattle Amazon hired, the higher its taxes would be, which is insane. Don't you want businesses hiring workers? Seattle actually wanted to disincentivize hiring people. And they were screaming about income inequality. So Amazon is pouring money in. And again, throughout the entire article, everyone is complaining about the Seattle City Council. All of the people who live in the city council are complaining about Seattle City Council. And the socialist, the Associated Press refers to the socialist as just a liberal. But the liberal city council person is is actually self-described as a socialist who doesn't like capitalism. If the media can take a spin there when we know how much the media is an advocate of of the climate change agenda on the left and and shutting down capitalism and harming the American economy to advance their climate change agenda, why should people believe them? When you do an entire story on Amazon bad, but you got to go to New York City to find someone complaining about Amazon involving itself in the politics of its hometown all the way across on the other side of the country— one can easily be forgiven for thinking, hey, you know what, maybe there's an agenda here, and a lot of this stuff is fake news and not real news. This Democratic debate in Georgia is is becoming a, a headache for the Democrats and for Georgia. Um, <laughs> it, the, um, so they're having it. It's an MSNBC-NBC debate. It'll be on MSNBC. It'll be at Tyler Perry Studio. And first, they were coming under some pretty withering attacks from uh, progressive groups over having an MSNBC debate because of the sex scandal at NBC. Uh, what's his name? Ronan Farrow's book has come out. And uh, NBC is allowing people supposedly out of their non-disclosure agreements, supposedly. Um, no one has yet said that NBC has actually let them out. Uh, rumors are that they're coming. Megan Kelly, uh, formerly of Fox News and NBC, is encouraging women to come forward. There are lawyers willing to represent them if they do come forward. NBC will not let an outside group come in and do an investigation of how the Lauer situation was covered up. And uh, Lauer is now claiming it's it's a negative, unfair attack on him that he didn't rape anyone. One of the allegations from Pharaoh's book is that Lauer essentially raped someone. Um, it's, it's really a mess and NBC is just screwing up completely on how it handles it. So an outside progressive group is calling on the democratic candidates in the me too era to stand up to NBC and not participate in the debate until NBC takes the issue seriously. And if NBC won't take the issue seriously, the Democrats should not take them seriously and on and on and on it goes. Well, the Democrats are going to be at the debate in Georgia. Well, now, 
Another group has come forward and they're blasting NBC for doing it at Tyler Perry's studio. Why? Because of the fetal heartbeat legislation. They're supposed to boycott Georgia and Tyler Perry may have virtue signaled his opposition to fetal heartbeat, but he's not boycotting Georgia. And then we got to boycott Georgia. And so the Democrats cannot do it. And that, that was the, well, now, Now there's another group that's out and they're upset that the Democrats are doing it at Tyler Perry studio because they should be doing it in the northern metro Atlanta suburbs. There are plenty of places and it's tone deaf for them to do it at Tyler Perry studio. They're going to win that area anyway. They're going to make inroads into Gwinnett County and Cobb County and Forsyth County and Cherokee County. They're not going to win Forsyth and and Cherokee, but Cobb and Gwinnett and how dare they do that? Y'all. Of all of the complaints about the Democrats and where they're going to do their debate, that is not a valid complaint. There is not a single person in the state of Georgia who is going to go vote in either the Democratic primary or the general election next November who's going to get in there saying, I can't vote for the Democrats because they had that debate in South Atlanta instead of North Atlanta. Hello there. It is uh, Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, the full number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, Apple on Friday. By the way, I, I've got my, my AirPods Pro. They came in, which is great because I've totally, I, I have no idea where my AirPods are. Uh, they were in the kitchen and now they're gone. I have no idea where my AirPods are. Uh, and I got to take a trip on Friday. Um, and they came out with the AirPods Pro and I got them. They got noise cancellation. I haven't tried them out yet. I'll let you know. Um, but Apple is coming out with its Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus on Friday. So you got Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, HBO Max um, is coming. Uh, HBO is doing a big thing on that, which by the way, I mentioned this yesterday, but the Fuhrer has grown. Uh, so HBO had two game of Thrones prequels and they canceled one and they're keeping the other. The one that they canceled was being, had Naomi Watts in it and was helmed by a bunch of women. And they'd gone out of their way to make a big deal about it being a bunch of women in charge, and they've canceled it, and now the social justice warriors are appalled that they canceled the one the women were doing. But uh, HBO Max is coming out. Disney Plus comes out November 11th. Uh, The Apple one, though, is getting bad reviews, uh, the initial The Morning Show, and that's the one I wanted to see. Uh, apparently it takes you three episodes to get into it, to actually like it. And, and it's not getting good reviews. It's the Jennifer Anderson, Weiss or Weiss, Reese Witherspoon, uh, TV show. And they're, they're not having it. Uh, the critics don't like it. Now, part of this, I think is that the critics as well, they're not liking all these streaming services in general. It's like, take, for example, the, the Netflix, um, Martin Scorsese movie. Critics are giving it glowing reviews, and I don't doubt. I do not doubt it's a good movie. It's Martin Scorsese. It's Robert De Niro. It's Al Pacino. It's going to be a great movie. But let's not kid ourselves. Some of the critical response is also in large part due to the fact that Scorsese is taking on Marvel and blasting Marvel and saying Marvel's not real movies. And the media, the, the the critics love it because the, the critics don't like Marvel superhero movies. It, it's dumbed down cinema. It's not real cinema. I, I increasingly think that critics um, have become social justice warriors and there are real problems. In fact, um, 
see, I saw this story. Let me see if I can Google it real quick. Disparities between Rotten Tomato critics and audience. Uh, there, there was a, let's see if this comes up. Um, no, I, 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 I can't find the, but there was a, an article the other day. Oh, wait, th this is, this is one. Um, it's not the one I was thinking of, but this is, is a fairly recent one that the, the divide between audiences and film critics keeps growing. The last few weeks, this is from September 28th. Uh, the last few weeks have been full of discussion about the different opinions of critics and audiences from Bat Brad Pitt's new sci-fi epic Ad Astra and its dwindling audience reactions. 43% of the audience liked it. A 7.1 IMDb score, which is falling fast to both Ansel Elgort uh, and Frank Stallone uh, appearing to take aim at critics following their uh, ravaging of the Goldfinch and Rambo Last Blood, respectively. Both of which, if you look at the aggregators on Rotten Tomatoes, have higher audience ratings than critical scores. And these instances aren't the most high-profile discrepancies. Sony's uh, Venom and Fox's Bohemian Rhapsody, especially the latter, almost started a full-scale war. The films were ripped apart in reviews for their poison of dullness, according to for Venom, or their appearance of having gone through the rusty machinery of the Hollywood biopic for Bohemian Rhapsody. But it didn't start either getting to 700 million and higher in the worldwide box office and the latter sweeping some of the Oscars. In fact, Rami Malek took home the best actor Oscar. And there's a great big divide. And we're seeing this more and more. If you put out an esoteric movie that is anti-war and anti-Republican, the critics are going to love it and no one's going to go see it. Uh, oh, what was the... Oh, what was the movie? Um, um, oh, there was some movie about women behaving badly recently and the, the, the critics absolutely loved it and no one wanted to go see it. Uh, and contrast that with Good Boys. Uh, Good Boys is a movie I haven't seen, uh, but it, it's, it's got a Rotten Tomatoes score of 79% now, but the initial critics hated it. They didn't like it because it was all of these boys and, and, and the bad boys and, and shame on the boys, and um, the critics genuinely hated it. Or take Joker. Joker is another one where the critical consensus of critics is 69% fresh, 89% with the audience, and the initial critics were even lower. You've actually got to go for the, the reason that the Joker is now at 69% and not lower is because critics who didn't get advanced screenings but had to go to it released their critical reviews and it went up. The preening critics of the award season went and saw it and they hated it. It was all a bunch of white men behaving badly in New York and they're going to cause an incel rebellion and, and the people who, who aren't getting it on with girlfriends are going to go out and start shooting people up and this is a Trump movie. It's becoming amazing to see the divide between critics and critical consensus and what audiences think. Uh, the critical consensus there more and more is a, a wokeness among the critics where if it doesn't have a, a, I mean, it's like they've got a checklist now, not enough transgender uh, actors, not enough uh, LGBTQIAATPP plus people, uh, too many white guys, 
it's it's too violent against minorities. It's not violent enough against uh, oppressive white men. And on and on and on it goes. And audiences don't care. The audiences want to be entertained. And the critics want to have their religious values affirmed. Wokeness, wokeness is a religion. I actually got somewhat in trouble with some people on social media yesterday because I pointed out uh, that, you know, I, I'm, I am a, a Christian. I'm very open about that fact. I, I'm a bad one, but I am one. And I, I have a Bible verse referenced in my, um, in my Twitter bio feed from Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I notice that in the woke religion, that people, instead of putting Bible references, they put their pronouns in their Twitter bios. Uh, a, a number of people have been started following me over the last few weeks, and I don't know why. I, I think I got on some list of uh, conservatives who will make you mad, but you should follow on social media to see what the other side thinks. I And I forget who came up with the list, but there have been an influx of progressives following me, and I'm trying to go in and block a number of them because um, I swear I have the worst followers on social media. Y'all listen, I, and no disrespect. If you follow me, you're more than welcome to follow me. You can certainly improve um, the people who, the caliber of people who follow me, follow me on Instagram where I'm not political at EW Erickson. Um, but Twitter is EW Erickson. Facebook is EW Erickson. I, I swear to you, I have the worst followers on Twitter though. If I say that the sky is blue, you will have a million angry Twitter followers telling me I'm being a misogynist. It's it's ridiculous. I feel bad when I see a, a Christian tweet something, a quote or so, an inspirational quote or something out of the Bible or make a, a good point on, on theology, and the angry horde of Mordor comes out in my Twitter feed to savage the person. And I really do refer to my, my Twitter followers as, as creatures of Mordor. It, it's really awful. And they were savaging me yesterday for pointing out that uh, the woke religion, where Christians quote scripture, the woke religion quotes their pronouns. You know, you see this all the time. Now, you, you as a good citizen of Georgia, more likely than not, are watching Facebook Live or spill over into, into some of these, these states in the southeast that can now pick up the show. And uh, you probably have not seen this if you're not on Twitter, but on Twitter now, if you're a good woke soul, you put your preferred pronouns in your Twitter bio. I saw somebody follow me yesterday and said, um, is so-and-so, so-and-so, bioethicist, something or other, uh, he, him, he slash him. It was like, what, what on the, and, and then there was someone else on there uh, that was, was she, her? It's like, seriously? Um, you're a boy, and so of course your pronouns are he and him and his. You're a girl, of course your pronouns are he or she, her, and hers. Now, I, I realize there are some some people out there who have issues with that, but uh, science says. But it's become religious for these people, and that religion is infiltrating everything. It goes back to that Barack Obama uh, statement I played a little while ago that, that people have just, the wokeness, all woke wokeness is, is a religion that judges. Christianity says, thou shalt not judge. Actually, that's taken out of context, and I should not be one to do it. Uh, Jesus says, say, uh, judge. Uh, the same guy who says, thou shalt not judge, later says to judge, to use discernment. Uh, but uh, with wokeness, all it is is judgment. 
you've got to conform. And if you don't conform, you must be destroyed. Uh, it, it, it is a bizarre moment that we're living in with this, um, with this, uh, I, I'm at a loss for what it is. It, it, it's religious paranoia and religious fervor. It's the Salem witch trials of wokeness. This spills over into Silicon Valley. Let's talk for a minute about WeWork. WeWork is a bizarre, I would call it, I've been calling it a Ponzi scheme. It has never made sense to me. Uh, so if you go into Atlanta, if you if you dare to venture outside of Habersham County or, or Floyd County or Clark County or Bibb County or wherever, go down to Lowndes County, you, you, you go to Tallahassee, go down to Gainesville. I think they've got one there. Um, you will encounter WeWork and see if this makes any sense to you. WeWork buys up, well, it doesn't buy up, it rents office space. And then it sublets the office space. It, it goes through major redesigns and then rents the office space by the hour, by the month, um, individual office spaces. You know, my buddy Chris Burns, actually, doesn't use WeWork. Um, but, you know, Chris Burns from Dynamic Money, uh, they sponsor the show regularly. Chris has filled in for me here. Uh, he runs ads on my other show. Great guy. He, he Chris Burns, actually, I've got a meeting with him at the top of the hour. Uh, Chris is my and my wife's financial advisor. In fact, if you need a financial advisor, this is not an ad. It's just I, I really adore Chris and his wife. Um, one of the things that sets Chris apart from so many financial advisors is he doesn't take commissions. A lot of financial advisors will steer you into products that their office manages because they make a commission. So they charge you a low fee. You think you're paying something, but then they get commissions. Chris doesn't charge commissions. He, he charges fees. Now, he makes money off of managing your money. But if he tells you you need an annuity, which he would rarely do, he's not going to um, he's not going to encourage you to take out an annuity because he makes money off of it. He's going to tell you that because he really thinks it'll help you. Um, Chris works in a, one of those shared office spaces like we work as, and I forget the name of the company um, that where, where Chris is. And, but he's increasingly there was Zillow. The real estate company owned a big section of it, and Chris was able to get a good deal on, on subletting. So he's, he's a, a penny pincher, and so, of course, he was going to do something like that and instead of renting out his own office space. Um, WeWork does this, though. It, it's collaborative office spaces where you can go in. They have beer on tap and lots of coffee, and you can get an office, and they're renting from other people and then re-renting to you, and oftentimes they're not making any money on renting to you because they're actually undercharging you from what the landlord is charging them. Or it, it took them forever, apparently, to understand economies of scale. They're renting out 100,000 square feet from the same landlord, so give us a good deal. Well, the WeWork CEO looks to be a total con job. He was taking money from the company, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in debt and smoking. I mean, he was a weed fiend. The guy was, was a, a smokestack of marijuana and really weird. But he was able to go out and tell the media, you know what? We're not going to let anybody get reimbursed by the company for eating meat at a business meeting. And the media, oh, he's so woke. This is so awesome. WeWork is working for the environment and they're not going to, they're going to punish meat eaters. This is so good. And he got all sorts of praise for doing all of this, this kooky woke nonsense. I started to say a bad word that I shouldn't say. 
They got all sorts of applause from the media for all this wokeness that we work. They, they got all sorts of applause for being environmentally forward thinking. They were leaning forward like MSNBC. He, they had all the right values and they didn't want to rent out their, their business space to people who might discriminate to Christians like Airbnb, Airbnb. If you believe that men shouldn't marry men, if you believe in traditional marriage, if you don't support transgenderism, Airbnb doesn't want to do business with you. Oh, yay. Yay. Woke corporation. And it's really abundantly obvious at this point that a lot of this is all scam that the leaders of these corporations are doing all this woke stuff in public because they know they can get applauded by the press who might just turn a blind eye then to their financials. It's all come tumbling down for WeWork now. They, they wanted to, to have an IPO, the, the head of WeWork. And again, this is a company that doesn't own property. It rents property and re-rents to other people. And the CEO decided he wanted to be the world's first trillionaire by subletting property that he does not own. And people went along with it because he was cool. He was hip. He smoked weed on the job and he was a vegan. And it could only get him so far. The house came tumbling down on him. He's out now. And and he's basically making a billion dollars by being kicked out of the company. And the company itself needs to go through layoffs and it can't go through the layoffs because it doesn't have the money to pay the severance. But for a while, as long as he was saying all the right woke stuff, the media made him out to be a hero. You know, I I think Silicon Valley is getting itself into trouble in large part because Silicon Valley lacks humility. Or in in Facebook's case, because conservatives have been able to figure out a way to use Facebook, uh, Facebook is in trouble because of uh, conservatives using Facebook. The media hates Facebook because uh, Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire generate a lot of traffic from Facebook. Therefore, Facebook must be conservative. Therefore, Facebook must be bad. But Google, who has people come out and say that, you know, we, we need to shift the algorithm to, to downplay Trump and conservatives. Google is, is heroic, according to the left. Who cares about the invasion of privacy there? Or you just go out and you say some proudly nonsense that's woke and the media loves you pays no attention to your financials and you can scam a bunch of people out of a bunch of money wokeness has become a religion and just as there are christians who like to go support christian-owned businesses i'm one of them there are wokeness people who go out and they want to support the woke business because it too is a religion so there is a new scourge taking over washington dc that everyone is outraged by biofilm you know, I noticed this. So the if you go to Washington right now, the Jefferson Memorial is being cleaned up, and it has taken a long time to clean it up. It, the Just the moldy, mildewy, can I say it without saying a bad word? Sooty? <laughs> I almost I had to catch myself there. I'm trying to say sooty. <laughs> The soot-covered dome, the the the, the black uh, dome, uh, moldy mildew, soot, something, pollution. Turns out, uh, their their government scientists are having to come forward and and answer why it's taken so long to clean all the gunk off the Jefferson Memorial. And it's not soot. It's not mold. It's not mildew. It's biofilm, a microbial mix 
that uh, the LA Times says is more confusing than listening to Rudy Giuliani. Uh, the, the Jefferson Memorial is covered in these black, uh, dark blotches and biofilm is starting to come out on the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial as well. Uh, but the, the Jefferson Memorial is overrun with it and they're having to burn it off with laser beams. It can't be scrubbed off. It's got to be burned off. It looks like mold, but it goes deeper into the cracks. It's the slimy stuff. If you walk barefoot in a river. Go up to North Georgia, go to the Tacoa, go, go, uh, tubing in the Tacoa. Just not now you'll freeze to death. Uh, but, uh, the, the rocks are slippery. They're slimy feeling that's biofilm and it's showing up in hospitals. It's showing up in wastewater pipes. Um, it, it, it's even gotten onto the international space station and it's really hard to get rid of. You essentially have to burn it. Uh, to get rid of it, and that's what's covering the Jefferson Memorial. And the irony, uh, there are two ironies. Scientists say, you you know, two of the things that are causing it, which is actually kind of hilarious. The air quality in Washington, D.C. has improved so much. The the dirty air used to kill the biofilm, and the air in D.C. has gotten so clean, and it's never smoggy anymore. And the other thing is ethanol. Uh, ethanol has uh, apparently products in ethanol that when ethanol is burned in cars, the emissions of ethanol are what biofilm feeds off of. And the scientists, at least these are some of the working theories of the scientists. The Park Service uh, can't coat the Jefferson Memorial with zinc oxide, the white stuff that... Um, prevent sunscreen uh it's proving effective at restoring uh tombstones at arlington national cemetery they can't do that because of the tidal basin it could cause pollution in the tidal basin so they got to use lasers to burn off the biofilm and it takes them forever it takes an hour to clean two square feet and they're afraid that it's going to spread to others uh Oh, my goodness gracious, y'all. Biofilm is taking over because of of what? Because it's gotten too clean in Washington, D.C. We need more sludge in Washington, I guess. Uh, There's a metaphor there for something. I'll talk to y'all tomorrow.